Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Today, we begin a discussion of the second play in Shakespeare's enormous double tetralogy of history plays, two sets of four plays recounting the events from the deposing and killing of King Richard II in the year 1400, which is the subject of the first play, up through the end of the Plantagenet dynasty and the beginning of the Tudor dynasty of Shakespeare's own time, with the death of Richard III in the eighth and last play in the Tetralogy. Shakespeare didn't write them in chronological order, but they do proceed chronologically from the deposing and killing of Richard II, which we have already seen in the first play, Richard II, up through a little bit just before Shakespeare's own time. When we open Henry IV, Part One, there is, by the way, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and this sequence is sometimes known as the Henriad. The action is continuous from Part One to Part Two, but there has been a break before that. It has now been, we learn from Act One, Scene One, an entire year since Richard the Second ended. In the last scene of Richard the Second, Harry Bolingbroke who invaded, after coming back from exile, invaded England, deposed Richard, and ended up having him killed, ascended the throne as King Henry IV, and in the very last scene of Richard II, announces that they will go on a crusade to the Holy Land. And you may ask, if you've just been through what amounts to a rather brutal civil war, Englishman against Englishman, what sense does it make to go traipsing off to a crusade in the Holy Land of all things? Well, actually, it makes very good sense. Actually, it's a version of an old trick, an old political trick of drawing people together in a common cause against a foreign enemy, a foreign foe, an alien scapegoat figure, to draw attention away from the strife of brother against brother that you had on your hands. It's not only an old trick, it's still a modern one and has still been used. Busying giddy minds with foreign wars, as Henry V will call it, in the fourth play of the Tetralogy. Oh, we've seen that in our time. So much so that years ago there was a satiric play called Wag the Dog with Robert De Niro, in which the United States decided it needed a pretext to draw attention and decides to declare war someplace, someplace or other to take our mind off of this. But it's gotta be someplace we can win. So they end up declaring war on Albania. In real life, it, of course, 
wasn't so funny. They declared, declared war on Iraq, and you may have heard that it didn't go all that well. Well, at any rate, however well it went, these days, back then, it was a practice trick. As I say, Henry V will do the same and declare wars in France, which is the subject of the fourth play, Henry V. And Henry V was filmed by Laurence Olivier as an act of patriotism during World War II when England itself was at war. However, that's the that may be the real reason, the political Machiavellian reason, but of course that can't be the stated ostensible reason. What Henry declared that he was doing was atoning for whatever wrong there may be in the rather bad thing of deposing God's anointed king and then, oops, he got put to death. It, it wasn't my fault, but yeah, I guess it was on my watch. So we're going to go and atone for any sinfulness in the way that I got to the throne by doing this pilgrimage, shall we say, to the Holy Land. And the play opens rather long-windedly, it seems to me, with an enormous speech by Henry saying, well, that was the idea, but this our purpose now is 12 months old and bootless is to tell you we will go. Therefore, we meet not now. Well, that was the idea, but we're not gonna do that. Why is that? Suddenly the plan is shelved, put a put off the table. And the reason is, as we find out through the long discussion of Act 1, Scene 1, that we have new domestic problems on our hands, a new uprising up north, the Celts, actually a continuation, you could say, of the uprising of the Celts in Richard II. Richard went off in that play to fight the Irish and put them down, which turned out to be not a very bright move on his part, leaving the country at a crucial moment, which left Bolingbroke a way to get in and put himself into power. Now we have a revolt in Scotland and Wales. We have the Earl of Douglas from Scotland and Owen Glendower of Wales rising up in the Celtic countries of the North and the West. Why are they rising up? Because that's what the Celts do, if you know anything about British history. The English have put down and tried to conquer the Celts ever since the Anglo-Saxons invaded in old times, and that attempt just keeps being perpetuated down through history. So they are rising up again, it, any pretext will do. And we get report from the battlefields. And there is some good news and some bad news to summarize the remainder of the scene's discussion. Bad news, 
Mortimer has been taken prison by the Welsh. One of our guys will talk about him extensively in just a few moments because he, in fact, is the pivot on which the whole plot turns. But Mortimer has been taken prisoner by the Welsh. Bad news. However, in the other direction, Douglas's son, the Scottish Mordrake, great name, has been taken prisoner in the other direction by Hotspur, rightful name Harry Percy, the son of Northumberland, whom we met in a cameo introduced by his father Northumberland to Bolingbroke in Richard II, simply to set up Hotspur's major role in this play. He will become the foil to Prince Hal, son of Henry IV. Douglas's son taken prisoner by Hotspur, good news. However, Hotspur refuses to deliver his prisoners to, including Mordrake, to Henry IV, even though he has a duty to yield them up to his king, bad news. And we will talk about why Hotspur refuses. We will see Hotspur continuing to refuse in just a moment. And all summed up by a dry, dour remark on the part of Henry IV. Well, Hotspur, Northumberland's son, is still better than my son, which is both bad and good news at once. At least he's out there fighting my son. We, go get him, will you? Go somebody fetch him. Where? Go look in the taverns. And that takes us to Act 1, Scene 2, where we get this sudden, complete switch of realms from the solemnity and chess-playing power politics of the court to the antics in the taverns, on the hills, elsewhere, of the company that Prince Hal is hanging out with which is led by Sir John Falstaff, one of Shakespeare's great creations, and remarkable because he is, first of all, not really historical. His name was borrowed with some distortion from an actual guy, Sir John Fastolf, who, as a matter of fact, by the time of Henry IV Part II, had lodged a complaint about the use of his name for such a disgraceful character, as well he might. But nonetheless, Falstaff, everything that we see of Falstaff in these two plays has very little to do with actual history. He's basically an invention of Shakespeare, and we always ask why. Why does Shakespeare change history? Why does Shakespeare add? And we, add, we ask that here, especially because Falstaff is a comic figure. One of the greatest comic figures in all of Shakespeare actually is not in one of the comedies, or rather he is, but belatedly later. He originally appeared in these two history plays, the two parts of Henry IV. There is a story that the queen 
herself enjoyed Falstaff so much that she requested of Shakespeare's company a further play about Falstaff and that Shakespeare obliged because when the queen makes you an offer, it's an offer you can't refuse. He obliged by the comedy, The Merry Wives of Windsor, showing Falstaff in love, which is really Falstaff in lust, but never mind. At any rate, Falstaff originally appeared in this very serious context and as a very obvious disjunction with all the very serious and tragic power politics going on throughout England. And the prince, who should be part of those power politics, is instead hanging out with Falstaff and a whole gang, a whole gang of people, of which only Falstaff, who is Sir John, is a member of the aristocracy, is of gentle blood, as they would have said. The rest are common people, the rest are low-life figures. And what are they doing? Well, they're being parasites, hanging out in taverns. But they're also robbing people on a rather professional basis, as a matter of fact, an organized basis. Why are they doing this? Are they poor, down-and-out people driven by economic circumstances to find some way of surviving? Nah, the prince has been bankrolling them, paying their way right and left for some time now. They don't need the money. This is not Robin Hood, in other words. And why are they robbing people? The prince actually asks Falstaff, uh, purse-taking, you know, I see good amendment of life in thee, he says to Falstaff, from praying to purse-taking. Falstaff replies, why how? Tis my vocation, how? Tis no sin for a man to labor in his vocation. And it's funny. It's a joke, one of many. But as usual in Shakespeare, we look for a double meaning. And in fact, there is one. Falstaff's vocation, meaning just what he is, what he was meant to do in life. He is a trickster figure. There is a figure in many mythologies of the world called a trickster. He's not bad, he's not good, he's ambiguous, and that's Falstaff, all right. He also, as we will see more of later, may go back to figures in folklore, including a figure who was called a Lord of Misrule. During a period of holiday, of Carnival, Carnival, famous book on Carnival by the Russian critic Bakhtin, talked about how in many societies earlier, there was a holiday of licensed anarchy in which the laws were not only overturned, but reversed. There was an actual Lord of Misrule who got within certain care carefully calibrated limits, got 
to have free reign and everybody partied and everybody had a great time. This was a British or European type of custom coming out of the Middle Ages, but back before that in the classical world, the Romans had a similar holiday of licensed anarchy called Saturnalia. And there's been a lot of scholarly work done on the relationship of Falstaff to this type of folklore and ultimately even mythological figure. But, no mistake, Falstaff and company are not licensed. The Lord of Misrule and the Roman Saturnalia, these were all official figures, officially sanctioned and therefore officially ruled and officially closed down at the end of a limited period of holiday. It was blowing off steam. That was the purpose of these holidays. Too much order, too much obedience, too much repression of our impulses makes Jack not only a dull boy, but a repressed boy and therefore perhaps socially dangerous. So we blow off steam with festivals in which people are allowed to get a bit rowdy. And we certainly have our own holiday tendencies of that sort. But these people are not licensed, or they've licensed themselves, you could say. And here they are being him outlaws. What in the world is the prince doing hanging out with them because they represent a tendency that is the opposite and we began to get imagery here as we had imagery back in Richard II and some of it is the same imagery the imagery of the sun and the moon and that imagery we said that Richard II is actually a companion play in a very uh, strange sort with two other plays written within a year of it, Midsummer Night's Dream, a comedy, and Romeo and Juliet, a lyrical tragedy, all of which feature similar imagery, including imagery of sun and moon, light and dark, day and night. And our introduction to both Hal and Falstaff begins with the opening of Act One, Scene Two, with the very significant though seemingly inconsequential line, Falstaff saying, now Hal, what time of day is it? And Fal the prince uses this. This is the way they relate in this group, especially the prince and Falstaff, uses it as a springboard for bantering and insulting in a witty way, and launches into a humorous speech. Thou art so fat-witted with drinking of old sack and unbuttoning thee after supper and sleeping on benches after noon that thou hast forgotten to demand that which truly thou wouldst know. What the devil hast thou to do with the time of day? You don't care what time of day it is. You sleep during the day and are up during the night. What about that? Oh, indeed, you come near me now, Hal, for we that take purses go by the moon and the seven stars, not by Phoebus, in other words, the sun, he that wandering night so fair. 
we are those who are the minions of the moon. And he goes on, just in case the audience needs more help grabbing hold of, oh, imagery here, let's start counting. He says, let us be Diana's foresters, Diana, the goddess of the moon, among other things, gentlemen of the shade, minions of the moon. And let men say we be men of good government, being governed as the sea is, by our noble and chaste mistress, the moon. So the gang is associated with the moon, but the moon, at least in some mythological contexts, is the so-called inconstant moon. The moon waxes and wanes. The moon can be a figure of misrule, as it is in Midsummer Night's Dream, when everything takes place during the night and we have lunar rule, so to speak. The king and the social order should be associated with solar imagery, as kings have been for many centuries in many cultures. But at any rate, they are going to labor in their vocation by continuing to take purses. And in fact, as the scene goes on, the secondary leader of the gang is a guy named Poins, and he has come up with a plan, and not only that, an organization, whereby their next caper is going to be at a place called Gad's Hill. There are pilgrims going to Canterbury with rich offerings and traders riding to London with fat purses. We are going to relieve them of their excess wealth. And the gang, we will meet members of the gang as the two plays go on. Uh, Bardolph and Pito and others, including a man, just to be confusing, a man whose name is Gads Hill, even though they are robbing at a place called Gads Hill. Why he is named after the hill, I have no idea. But at any rate, this is the plan. Then they go out, exit Falstaff, and Poins comes over to Hal and says, now, my good lord, we're going to have a jest. We're going to rob the robbers, you and I. So we have the Merry Pranksters, as we would have called this gang in the 60s. The Merry Pranksters who are going to go out and have a good time by robbing people, then we're going to have an even better time by robbing the robbers. We're going to disguise ourselves so they don't know it's us and rob them, and they will be properly terrified, or at least most of them will. Poin says, well, for two of them, I know to be as true-bred cowards as ever turned back. And as for the third, if he fight longer than he sees reason, I'll forswear arms. That has to be Falstaff. It's an interesting little aside there. Falstaff gets accused big time of being a coward, and yet Poins, who is certainly no noble, empathetic character, Poins seems to give him, at least momentarily, a little bit more credit than that. He may be a robber, he may be a parasite, which he is, but is he a coward? Only in so far as he sees reason to be, and we will figure that into the complex character, the very complex character of Sir John Falstaff as we go along.
Okay, we've got a plan, and then we've got a plan within the plan. Exit everybody except the prince, who gives a crucial soliloquy that ends scene two. I know you all, he says, speaking of the gang, and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. Yet, herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he pleased to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work. But when they seldom come, they wished for come. And nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So, when this loose behavior I throw off and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation, glittering o'er my fault, shall sow more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend to make offense a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. End of scene. I know you all, and lest the audience mistake, he claims to only be pretending to go along with the gang for a while, and then he's going to throw all that off. Why is he doing this? Because he has larger purposes which figure into his political plans. We learn here very explicitly that he is pretending the ne'er-do-well role, that in fact everyone up to his own father, the king, actually believes is true of him. The ne'er-do-well who is hanging out with actual outlaws, not just with dubious people, but outright criminals. When he's the prince, this man is going to be king of England someday. What is he doing? And it's a total scandal. It's in Henry IV tears his hair out. Here, how lets us, the audience, know this is all a ploy. That he's only pretending, and the reason is what we would call political theater. He has in mind that he's going to dramatize himself as a ne'er-do-well who suddenly repents and redeems himself. And by that, he will become much more popular than if he had been a good boy from day one. People love a reformed trickster. They will just love him, and this works. Spoiler alert. But in fact, the whole plan works if we read the four plays of this tetralogy up through Henry V, which is who he will become. That said, how much 
this is just a put-on, is still a matter for discussion. Whatever Henry or Hal, even by himself, thinks and has convinced himself, how much attachment, not to the gang, but at least to Falstaff, how much attachment he really has, more than possibly he will even admit himself. We will see. There is much to discuss, and as usual with Shakespeare, it's fascinatingly complex. At any rate, we move back to the courtroom and to high politics and to not only solemnity, but this time to actual angry conflict. The king is, to put it mildly, not very happy about the refusal of Hotspur and the party of Hotspur, including Worcester and Northumberland in, in general, to yield up the prisoners to him. He is, it's a direct disobedience. It is amounting to a kind of quiet insurrection, and he knows it, and the words out of his mouth in the opening of scene three, my blood hath been too cold and temperate, unapt to stir at these indignities. And you have found me, for accordingly you tread upon my patience, but be sure I will from henceforth rather be myself. I am not pleased, and I've been patient up till now, but that's over, baby. Worcester instantly characterizes himself by being the one to respond, and responds nastily. Our house, my sovereign liege, little deserves the scourge of greatness to be used on it, and that same greatness, too, which our own hands have helped to make so portly. Our house little deserves this type of angry outburst of yours, and let me remind you that we were the ones that put you on the throne, which, of course, does not improve Henry's temper. Worcester, get thee gone, for I do see danger and disobedience in thine eye. Exit Worcester. Northumberland tries to be a little more tactful about the matter, and especially since it's his son who is the directly disobedient one, and he tries to intervene before Hotspur can get into it and say, oh, well, these were not with such strength denied as, did, as is delivered to your majesty. Either envy or misprision is guilty of this fault, not my son. Oh, my son would never disobey you, my lord. You know, somebody has been giving you fake news here. Well, Hotspur blows that one to smithereens the minute he opens his mouth. Hotspur, another of Shakespeare's great creations, another piece of memorable and complex characterization, this time actually historical. There really was a Henry the Percy the Younger nicknamed Hotspur for 
very good reasons the nickname fits the man as we see before we get out of this scene as in fact before we get out of this speech in which he explains this is Hotspur's way of explaining why he did not do what he had the duty to do and yield up the prisoners and it is a masterpiece of one humor, unintentional on Hotspur's part, but satiric humor and psychological complexity if we read subtexts. This is what Hotspur says. It's a long speech, but we have to analyze it. My liege, I did deny no prisoners, but I remember when the fight was done when I was dry with rage and extreme toil, breathless and faint, leaning upon my sword, came there a certain lord, neat and trimly dressed, fresh as a bridegroom, and his chin new reaped showed like a stubble land at harvest home. He was perfumed like a milliner, and twixt his finger and his thumb he held a pouncet box, which ever and anon he gave his nose and took it away again, who therewith angry, when it next came there, took it in snuff. And still he smiled and talked, and as the soldiers bore dead bodies by, he called them untaught knaves unmannerly to bring a slovenly and unhandsome corpse betwixt the wind and his nobility. With many holiday and lady terms he questioned me, amongst the rest demanded my prisoners in your majesty's behalf. I then, all smarting with my wounds being cold to be so pestered with a popinjay, out of my grief and my impatience answered neglectingly I know not what. He should or he should not, for he made me mad to see him shine so brisk and smell so sweet, and talk so like a waiting gentlewoman of guns and drums and wounds. God save the mark. He goes on for some lines yet, but you get the idea. Several ideas. First, Hotspur, we speak of people with a short fuse, he has no fuse, he goes off like a cannon immediately and without control. He's speaking to the king and you would not know that from his manner of address. Second, what is he actually saying? Well, the person who came up to demand these prisoners of me he was such an effeminate fop that I was just enraged. I don't even know what I answered. In other words, I'm homophobic. I'm Mr. Manly, as we shall see, Mr. Soldier, Mr. Honor. But we protest a bit much here. It's overwhelmingly made clear that what really offends him is not the order to give up the prisoners, but this character who talks like a waiting gentlewoman. That's interesting. Hotspur is more complex than just a homophobic idiot with a short temper. He's much more than that. On the other hand, there's justice in that kind of description of him. 
And, in fact, eventually his own father will tell him that he's out of line, he's out of control, and he's not doing their cause or cause any good. At any rate, the scene goes on as we shall take up from this point next week by delving into a more likely reason that Hotspur refused to give up his prisoners, which includes Mordrake, a great ransoming piece, you know, political back-and-forth chess-playing, trading of pieces here. And that is that Hotspur's real reason has been that he refuses to give up Mordrake unless Henry ransoms Mortimer, who happens to be Hotspur's brother-in-law. And that's interesting. It's also toys with history a little bit, as we shall see next time, because Shakespeare has conflated two different men named Mortimer here. One of them is indeed a man who is related to him by marriage, so that he has a personal reason for this. But there's another reason, and this is where we will take up next time. The other Mortimer, so to speak, the one fused by Shakespeare with this Mortimer, is the heir presumptive to the throne. He is a descendant of Lionel, the second of the fabled seven sons of Edward III. The first was the Black Prince, from which Richard II was descended and thereby became king. But the second, Lionel, although he is long dead, there is a series of Mortimers that descend from him, coming down to the Mortimer that Richard himself, before he died, declared the presumptive heir to the throne after his death. In other words, Henry is refusing to ransom Mortimer because Mortimer has a claim to the throne. Mortimer is a rival. Oh, that's complicated. And we will take up with those complexities next time.